taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we step into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, and Ronan, Montana, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast. The Word of God says, Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. This is the Word of the Lord from Acts 2.22. Thanks be to God. So, Curtis, here we go. You know what? This may not be exactly the song I had here. Sometimes you wanna go where everybody Yeah, that's cheer. There you go. <laughs> this said it was the intro song, but it seemed like it added a few little words to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. I loved that show. That was so fun. That was a good show. <laughs> I think this is the full song here. I mean, this is like two minutes of like, all right, what in the world? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so apparently there's a longer version of Cheers song. So Yeah. So today we're wrapping up. Oh, and by the way, welcome aboard, folks. We just, we're glad to have you here with us. Um, but today we're wrapping up the uh, the last part of our Christology series, um, and we're gonna basically go in and uh, just talk about, kind of give an overview, and then uh, answer some listener questions and some other questions that might have uh, kind of come up throughout the whole uh, the whole series. So yeah, I'm pretty also, excited to get rolling on it. Also focusing on uh, the last section of our of our series on uh, christology uh there as well i mean sorry christology oh miracles it's been a long day sorry <laughs> right 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 yep yeah so i think we ought to just jump in so we got a sure. listener question uh what is meant by christ being eternally begotten of the father yeah, so both of these questions come to us from uh, a person by the name of New 2022. I li- like that name, New 2022. And uh, they they looked at our uh, statement of faith. That's where, where this question came from. And so our statement of faith actually blends some uh, things that come from uh, from from Liberty University, Biola University, and and some other things there as well. And so, this for a lot of places they when they talk about Christ, they say He's eternally begotten of the Father. So, the the word begotten is in Greek mean the monogenes, and it means a unique one uh, or the one and only. And so, uh, right. in this context, and uh, in, in context when it talks about Christ being eternally begotten of the Father, it's really talking about speaking of two different things. One, that Christ has eternally existed. That doesn't mean that God created Christ or there was a time where Christ was not. Uh, it, it speaks to the fact that Christ has exist from eterni- existed from eternity. And then secondly, it uh, identifies His eternal sonship, that uh, there is an order to the Godhead. Um, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all have different functions. They're all God, but the different persons, they serve different functions. So the Father would be, you'd say, the head. Uh, gives the directions, uh, you know, things of that nature, and the son exists under the the uh, the leadership, if you want to say so, say that of of the father. So, father, son, Holy Spirit. Again, there's a lot of this that's a mystery to us, but it just speaks to. Um, more simply put, it speaks to the eternal nature of Christ, and it turks and it speaks of the relationship that Christ has had from eternity uh, to the Father. Yeah, and I, I kind of like to think of it um, when I when I read that begotten part, I I, I want to always my mind always goes to the the only unique one or the very unique one. Yeah, uh, no one like him. That that's that's how my brain kind of 
thinks when I hear that word. And so when I hear it, that's that's just instantly where it goes. So I I couldn't I don't see it as a um, as like he was the only one made by God. Yeah, yeah, and and that's certainly not what the term begotten means. Not not many people. I mean, because you have the word begat, it, it almost identifies you know like uh, right. the, being an ancestor to or 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 having a child. Uh, you know that's what the term begat. So begotten, it is a little bit of a misnomer in that sense uh, because it almost makes you think that. He was created, but begotten in this sense is talking about, as you said, Curtis, the the only the the one the unique one, though, are one and only. That's a better way of understanding it. Yeah, no one like him. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So, what uh, the number? The second question is: What is meant by the Spirit proceeding from both the Father and the Son? So here again, we're talking about the relationship of uh, the the eternal Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and so this this shows that the Spirit flows out from the command of Father and Son. Uh, so that's essentially what it means. It it doesn't mean that uh, that the Spirit is any less God than Father and Son. It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that Jesus is any less God than the Father. They're all three God, uh, yet they have different persons and they'd have different uh, different functions and so uh, the spirit proceeds from the command of the fathers proceeds from the command of the son uh, and so that's that's how and, and let me just say here that this actually is a is a bit of a controversy between uh, grew out of a controversy between the um, Eastern Orthodox Church and the in the Roman Catholic Church because the, the Roman Catholic Church had taken the position which Protestants are children of the Roman Catholic Church because they broke away from the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, right. We we have taken that position of the Spirit proceeding from Father Son. Orthodox Church says that the Spirit proceeds only from the Father, and they don't include the Son in that. So there's a little distinction between how different uh, segments of Christianity view uh, the procession of the Spirit. Yeah. Uh some of my upbringing still comes back, bubbles up to the surface. <laughs> All I think of is walking to the door, and you got this little little bowl of of holy water, and you you bless Father, Son, Holy Spirit as you walk in, you know, and and the reverence and awe of of the pomp and circumstance of of the of the of the church of that of that liturgical style really does speak something to the holiness of God. Yeah, but I think there's things that are missed in it, um, but they do leave a lot of the mystery uh, for us to just ponder and continue to think on. I I, I agree absolutely, and, and you know I have I've had the opportunity um, in recent days to uh, attend last rites given to individuals by by priests and. You know, I think that we as Christians, we as Protestants, could learn a lot from our, our Catholic fr- Catholic friends in that sense because it really there's really something special to that. Uh, now, obviously, as Protestants, we don't believe that that's necessary for for a necessary right. sacrament, but at the same time, there's something that's really reverential. Uh, re- re- I don't know if I said that right. It, there, there's there's I'll a lot take of. It. I mean, that sounds good to me, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 very, it's very reverent, and it seems it makes it, it makes something. There's there's something special to the event, as it recognizes the fact that the person's passing into the presence of God, and it's just really something special about that. I, I, the whole point is, I think that we could we could actually adopt some of the practices of the Catholic Church without making them necessarily sacraments in that sense. Yeah. But we could adopt yeah. some of those practices, and, and I think we would be better for it. Yeah, yeah. Like you know, when when we would take uh, we go up and take communion. I mean, obviously, I don't want to get into that. You know about the whole communion, what that all means. You know, in the Catholic side of it. But uh, when we take communion, when we would take communion, it was it was actually you you took it and you were you it was. You you thought about it. You thought about what that meant. What what each 
part of the elements of of the of communion what it meant and the fact that you were taking part in something that the whole church big c church was taking part in and it was something to to be <clears throat> mindful of mm. a very good point stuff. yeah so so let's jump into uh I hope that answered those questions. If not, then we can, you know, they can ask again or whatever if they need to, and, and we'll we'll certainly tackle that. So, but let's jump into the first one here of this: is what is a miracle? Yeah, there are many different definitions of a miracle. Um, Gary Habermas gives a great definition of miracle. I don't have it with me right now, but uh, I, th- I think to save on time. Uh, in complexity, we'll just simply say that our, our working definition of a of a miracle is is a work attributed to God that cannot be explained by natural processes alone. And I think Habermas takes a very similar uh, definition to to that uh, as as what we gave. So so it does not rule out uh, God working through natural processes. Uh, it doesn't rule out that that God could. Uh, Work in 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 and through nature itself is is what we're trying to say there, but but it's it's something that cannot be attributed to the natural realm alone. It's something that requires an otherness to it to explain why it happened as it did. Hey uh, Curtis, I see your lips moving, but I think you're on mute. Oh, I was on mute. <laughs> yeah, I, I so, can see your lips just a minute. I was just but saying, I, I was looking at my book. Yeah. <laughs> Keep him there. Keep him quiet. My, hey, I, my I wife was, just, was happy when I had laryngitis. She was exci- excited about that. That's the first time she got peace and quiet in a long time. Yeah, yeah. Could you could you imagine? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so let's jump into the next one. So, what kind of miracles? did Jesus perform, and how are they categorized? This is very exciting to me. I I love talking about the miracles of Jesus. Uh, When we talk about the miracles of Jesus, he he performed many different amazing feats. And, And let's be honest, John even tells us in his gospel that not everything that Jesus said and did were recorded in the gospels. Of course, he's writing last. Uh, and so he says that not everything is recorded in the Gospels that Jesus said and did. Uh, he said if they, if they were, there wouldn't be enough. He uses hyperbole to say that there wouldn't be enough books in all the world to hold all the things that he did. But uh, from what we have in the Gospels, we see that there are four different kinds of miracles that Jesus performed. Uh, first of all, the first category is healing this 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 represents healing represents miracles over the material world. Um, when we talk about the healings of this sort, we're talking about um, Jesus healing, giving sight to the blind, uh, giving um, allowing the deaf to speak. I mean, the deaf to hear, and and those who couldn't speak uh, to loosen their tongues to allow them to speak. Um, those who couldn't walk, that they were able to walk, and just a variety of different ailments that Jesus healed. This would categorize the first kind of uh, miracle that Jesus performed. By the way, this marks the the most numerous form of miracles, uh, the miracle that Jesus performed. By the way, also, by the way, point two, 2.0, this is universally accepted by historical scholars that Jesus performed these kind of miracles. Uh, there's no debate on this. Jesus was considered to be a miracle worker. You even have adversaries of Jesus saying that Jesus performed these different signs and wonders. So that's not that's not debatable. It's really not debatable. Uh, the second type is also an undebatable form of Jesus' ministry, and that's exorcisms. Uh, these are miracles over the spiritual realm. Uh, this also marks a large part of Jesus' ministry. He uh, healed and did exorcisms. And here again, this is nearly universally accepted by scholars that uh, he would have performed exorcisms of this sort. Now, the difference of opinion is what those uh, it stems by what those exorcisms entailed. For some people, they would say they, they mark some type of mental illness 
Whereas most of us biblical Christians believe that there is a demonic realm and the, the demons can possess and oppress uh, the, the people. And now we know for children of God, children of God who have the Holy Spirit can't be possessed, but they can be oppressed. Big difference there. Uh, he, the devil can oppress the children of God, but not possess them because really... In a way, manner of speaking, we're really possessed by the Spirit of God, in a sense, uh, when, right. we, when we have yep. that baptism of the Holy Spirit, the, the infusion of God's Spirit in a, with our spirits, indwelling, in indwelling, absolutely. So, uh, so this is also largely performed by Jesus. So, uh, resurrection is another form of of miracle that Jesus performed. Uh, this is uh, miracles over the living world. Now here. Is, is where you get uh, a, a little more skepticism by uh, the, the scholarly realm. Uh, this wasn't done as much as the other miracles that Jesus performed. Uh, by the way, Jesus, some of these miracles that Jesus performed by resurrection, and when we say resurrection, we're not talking about the resurrection that Jesus had. These are kind of more like resuscitations that Jesus performed. Um, when we talk about this Jesus, some of these some of these cases were really profound. So, for instance, in the Jewish belief system of the first century, it was believed that that after a that a spirit of a person remained around their body for around two or three days, but after the third day, it was impossible for that person to come back to life. And there's a reason why Jesus waited to the fourth day to resurrect Lazarus up from the dead, and it was really That's profound. Make sure he's dead, dead. Yeah, make sure he's dead, dead. It's, if you ever watched the movie <laughs> Princess Bride, you remember uh, the, right. the different yep. kinds yep. of dead. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Billy Crystal was just classic in that movie. It's <laughs> that little dwarf guy, or I think it was he a troll. I guess he was a troll. But anyhow, uh, but but the resurrections Jesus performed uh, was was really profound. Uh, they were probably more frequent than what we think, but they still weren't as frequent as the regular healings and exorcisms that he performed. So thus far we have healing, miracles over the material world, exorcisms, miracles over the spiritual world, resurrection, miracles over the living world is what we would call that because he has power over the living world. And then finally, this is the one that scrutinized the most, especially by guys like Rudolf Bootmann and others like that. Uh, these are nature miracles, miracles over the natural world. Now, this is rejected by a lot of critical scholars, uh, but these are also the least performed miracles that Jesus performed. Uh, when we talk about nature miracles, we're talking about miracles that show and demonstrate his power over the natural realm. And this would include things like feeding 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. Now, we know by the time you count women and children, the number's up to probably 20,000, 18, 20,000 people that he Amazing. fed with a few loaves of bread. That, that's the size of most coliseums these days. The Greensboro yeah. Coliseum seats about 18,000, yet he probably fed something like 20,000 or maybe more for all we know with a few loaves of bread and a few sardines. When we talk about fish, we're talking about fish the size of sardines, most likely. Um and they ate and had more than enough left over. Was it 12 baskets, I think? Something like that? Yep. 12 baskets left over. Yep. So that would be a nature miracle. Another nature miracle would be where Jesus calms the storm. That's a nature miracle. When Jesus walks on water, that's a nature miracle. And, and to a sense, to a degree, you may even say that the transfiguration would be a, a miracle worker, uh, a miracle, uh, nature miracle of sorts. All of these are, are unique miracles that Jesus performed that demonstrates his power and authority over creation itself. Again, these are the least performed miracles of Jesus and the, and the, and the heavy, heaviest uh, scrutinized uh, by, by critical scholars. Uh, but in my opinion, I think all of them are true. I think if Jesus is who he claims to be, if he raised from the dead, then it is certainly possible that he could have performed all the things that were told of him. Uh, and this would not be something that a person would even anticipate Jesus right. to have done. 
and the interesting thing is with other messiahs, so-called messiahs, they they were said to do some types of healing and some types of exorcisms. But to my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong, if someone's out there knows you know otherwise, to my knowledge, I never heard of any story of a of a, of a messiah raising someone from the dead and uh, performing these type of nature miracles. Those were unique to Jesus and unique to him alone. Right. Right. Yeah, and you know, so like the whole, um, you know, the miracle of the of the walking on the water, I think a lot's missed there um, when we we understand that water was a picture of of chaos of oh of, yeah of the uh, of the underworld and there it is Jesus is walking on the surface of the chaos the surface of the underworld he's he's showing his deity his his uh power over that so yeah i understand people you know there may be skeptics that are are naturalists that would say well that could never happen well you also have to understand that there was a lot of teaching in in pictures in uh types and shadows that was was going on all there at that same time oh yeah absolutely but but that doesn't take away from just and just to clarify that doesn't take away from the literal aspect of him right. you know walking on storm as Curtis Abs- was saying absolutely through, and here again we go to that Augustinian thing we were talking about before there's that literal event that happens in history but yeah there's also these types and shadows these illusions that lead back to other deeper spiritual truths found in the story the literal story itself by the way, just to add one more thing, uh, another miracle I failed to mention that would be a nature miracle was actually Jesus' first miracle when he turned water into wine. That would also be a nature miracle. Yeah, right. Yep, for sure. Yep. And isn't it interesting yeah, to, totally. to stop and consider, isn't it interesting that his first miracle, never thought about this, never thought about him the sea part that you mentioned either. That's a very good point to mention um, about him walking on water and that being a symbol of chaos. But it's interesting if you think about it, there's a nature miracle at the very first miracle Jesus performs. And there's also, in a sense, another nature miracle in, in, to a degree because with his resurrection, it's a completely complete reversal of the physical order. It's a spiritual body, not just a physical body, a spiritual body. So right. there's almost you have not only that resurrection, but that nature miracle over the, the material world itself yep. to make it into a new type of completely new type of body. And so uh, yeah. It's interesting to think that, that, or even if not that, the ascension would be a nature miracle. So it's interesting to think that Jesus' ministry begins with a nature miracle and ends with something comparable to a nature miracle. Yeah. Crazy. Pretty neat stuff. So, uh, number three, then, did Jesus perform miracles by his own power? I'm sorry. My, my mind just brought up another thing. Could you not say the virgin birth was a nature miracle? Oh, yeah. <laughs> For sure. Even though that may not have been one that he himself performed, that would be a nature miracle, too. Sorry, my mind just keeps popping up these things. So going back to your question. No, that's what, that's what it's about. Is That's that's part of that whole, we've, we've read through the scriptures, and now, and now the Spirit is bringing up these things. And as we go, and we, and we, I mean, yeah, these things come up to us, and I totally understand, totally agree. And taking it back a little farther, if if Jesus were, and I believe he was, the the one in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that would also have been uh, a, a nature miracle, even then. So it's anyhow. So so back to your question: Did Jesus perform miracles of his own power? This gets a little complicated. The answer. What do you mean by own power? <laughs> yeah, and this this gets complicated. So the answer is yes and no. Yes and no. Did Jesus have something to do with these miracles? Absolutely. But was he alone in the operation of these miracles? Not really. And and here's what I mean. Even with the miracles of Jesus, we see the triune working of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because I want us to take a look at a few passages of Scripture. So notice that Jesus prayed to the Father and was empowered by the Spirit when when Lazarus was raised from the dead in John chapter 11. 
So let's also go now to uh, Matthew chapter 28. Uh, let me get this pulled up here. I tell you what, Curtis, I'm going to pull up Matthew uh, 12, 28. If you could look up Matthew 12, uh, actually, I'm sorry, John 5, 19. Let's do John 5, 19. I'll look up Matthew 12, 28. Okay, so this, uh, this is what I'm getting ready to read happens after he, um, ah, should I do it? I'm going to. I found out something in my dissertation study because actually this passage of Scripture was on my dissertation. Okay, um, There's something interesting that happened with this. In Jewish, the Jewish belief system, it was held that, uh, that exorcisms could not be performed on deaf people, people who couldn't hear. And there's a reason for that. Yep. And, yep. and so I won't get into all of that because I don't want to take away too much from the dissertation, but it was believed that that, that uh, exorcisms could not be performed on deaf people. So that this person was blind and unable to speak, uh, or, or I guess you'd say mute people, not just deaf, deaf and mute. It was impossible, they thought. Blind and unable to speak was brought to him. He healed him so the man could both see and speak. Okay, so... Jesus says, and that they're accusing him of driving out demons by the power of Beelzebub. So, but Jesus says, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So, here's the point: mm-hmm. that Jesus was performing these miracles by the Spirit of God indwelling him and being sent out from him. That goes back to the question that was asked earlier: uh, that the Spirit is working in and through the ministry of Jesus. Uh, so he's casting out by the Spirit of God. So we can't say that, uh, but we cannot say that Jesus isn't part of the miracle, even though the miracle is performed by the Spirit of God. And if you go back and look, as we were talking about before, Jesus walking on water, Jesus says, It is I, which is the word ego in me, which translates back over to I am, uh, and uh, which which the which the name Yahweh, if that's how you say it, we don't even know that that's exactly the way you say right. it. But the divine name of God, which we really probably shouldn't even say the divine name because it's a holy sacred name, it, but it means the I am. So when when Jesus, as Curtis was saying earlier, walking over the water, a symbol of chaos, overpowering chaos, he says that I am. He says that he is the I am. That is a direct allusion back to the Father, also indicating that right. He is the 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 divine incarnate walking on the, over the chaos, power over the chaos, as He did. Mm-hmm. So, um, so He so He is part of the miracle. The Spirit is working and proceeding through Jesus, but He also mentions that His He attributes His works to the Father. And here we go to John five nineteen. So, it says here, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So there again, when Jesus is performing these miracles, he's doing it in and through the Spirit of God, because he even goes on even further in Matthew 12 to say, that uh, I tell you, people will be forgiven of every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, right. either in this age or in the one to come. So what that's pointing toward oh boy, is dismissing the working of the Holy Spirit and attributing it to something demonic. Oof. Yeah, and especially when it comes to the the working of the Spirit through Jesus, uh, that that's why there's some salvific implications to that. Um, 
But also, you see this connection in John 5.19 with the Father. He can't do anything except that the Father allows him to do. He's working in and through the power of the Holy Spirit, yet he himself is doing it. He's the instrument doing these things. So, is Jesus performing the miracles of his own power? Yes, he's performing his power. He does have power to perform miracles, but mm-hmm. no, he's not the only one performing it. It's when he works a miracle, and really when the Father works any type of miracle, it's through Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to a degree, to some mm. degree. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's kind of like um, kind of like in the Garden of Gethsemane when uh, soldiers come in, in to uh, arrest Jesus, and, they, and he says, what are you lo- who are you looking for? And they said we're looking for for Jesus, mm. and and he says I am, mm. and the soldiers fell down. Just, oh yeah, just were blown back, you know. So power of the Holy Spirit at that moment too. And that's something we need to remember. Uh, the, the, well, we're going to get into this a little earlier. There is <laughs> power in the Holy Spirit. There is power in and through the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. We'll just leave it there. Yep. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So, were uh, were there times when Jesus was unable to perform miracles? Now, this just sounds weird to say. Yep. But there were times when he was unable to perform a miracle. I think it's Mark 6, verse 5. I was looking up something before, and it directed me toward Matthew, but it wasn't the right passage of Scripture. Um, so let, let's go back to Mark chapter 6. Um, it, let, let's just read this entire segment. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, to get kind of a background. So he left there, came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. He's, he's in his own town of Nazareth. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? And how are, how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Not the same Judas Iscariot, a different one. Uh, this is actually Jude, the same one who wrote the little book at the back of the Bible right before Revelation. Yeah, Jude. Uh, Judas is another word for Jude, by the way, for folks who don't know. And Simon. Uh, And are his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. They were offended by him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. He Hmm. was, now look at verse 5, He was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few of the sick people and healed them, and he was amazed at their unbelief. He kept going around the villages teaching. Seems like that should be worded differently. He should be, he went, was going around teaching in the villages. I don't know, maybe that's just me. <laughs> yeah. So anyhow, to answer the question, there were times when he was unable to work a miracle because of the lack of faith uh, of people. Yeah. And, and you know, Curtis, this makes and, me really go go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just gonna say the the hardness of the heart, the hardness of you know, he he mentions that quite a few times, even beware of the of the leaven of the Pharisees, it's gonna lead you down the wrong way. It's the hardening of, of their heart, the hardening of, of their understanding. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, Curtis, as I was thinking about this passage of scripture earlier today, it makes me wonder as, as we talk about the status of the modern church and the problems we have going on, it makes me kind of wonder if in the American church the reason we're not seeing a mighty move of the Holy Spirit is because perhaps we do have too much skepticism and, and really that lack of belief in some segments that the Spirit's no longer going to move. Could that not be? I don't know. Sorry for, yeah. the, phone. Sorry for the phone ringing in the background. <laughs> no. I I totally I agree. I think that that's I think that's actually, um, I think that's why we have in and we've had some discussions about this. Um, you know, my pastor Eric and I have had these discussion about this. Is you know, 
the American church or the or the Western church isn't seeing the same kind of Holy Spirit moving in the miracles and and such happening. Why? Um, could it be because of intellectualism? Could it be because of of uh, you know that 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 side of it really kind of uh, you know if you're not careful, it can actually lead you to a point where not really Gnosticism, but already you have you have the knowledge. You don't really need to have the spirit. You know, Curtis, I think you hit on a major point because you know it seems like we 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 have problems as human beings with balance because you know we we've, we've mentioned before on the on this podcast many times before about the problems of anti-intellectualism and and the lack of yeah. biblical literacy and and the failure of people to really study the word of god and really dig deeper into its truths but I think you're right. I think the opposite is also true when we have this intellectual elitism to the point and degree that we no longer have compassion and empathy and no longer have this yearning for for the Holy Spirit. Both of them are dangerous. Both of them are really problematic. Yeah. And... Um, you know, because with without intellectualism, you know we're gonna we're gonna slide into different type of heresies, cults, false beliefs, and I think we we've seen that we've already seen that happen. Yep. But without but with with the intellectual elitism with no spirit, it, it becomes a cold, heartless institutionalism or institutional institution. I'll get my word right out here in a minute. Where we are more about the facts and figures than we are about the people right. that constitute the church, right? Yeah, I think. And just out of yeah. just out of pure question about that, if we if we look at it, what does Jesus tell us about partiality? You know, for showing partiality to people. You know, oh yeah, is is the church in America falling into this idea that? If we're not um, like you, you, like you're saying, intellectualism. If we're not, if we're not into that deep of it, then then we're not um, a, of the faith, or we're not um, worthy. So there again, my my point being, the intellectualism would be showing partiality to more and more of the intellect. Yeah, I, I think you're on to something. I think you're on to something there, Curtis. I think that, you know, obviously we, we need to have just we need to have well-trained Christians serving the Lord. We, we need to have people of all ranks, you know, I think I think what I think if if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Jay Warner Wallace who was talking about. And if it wasn't Jay Warner Wallace, it was someone in his crew that was talking about how in the church we have. We have the army of the Lord. If you think about it, in, in in the ranks of of military, you know we the the church in general is like the infantry. We're out there battling day by day basis. And then if you, you go to your Bible trained individuals, you have kind of more like your officers, like so people who've gone to get to Bible college and get biblical training. They're right. kind of like the officers, and and then those who go into deep academia, they're like special forces. Um, and by the way, let me just say that, that a person who has a Ph.D. is only qualified in a small area, not every area, a small area of expertise. And that's where his or her expertise is, is that small section, whatever it is they've studied. But having said that, that special force person in the economy of God is no greater of a Christian than the person who's an infantryman uh, or in the infantry. You've got to have all of them working together in unison. And I think part of, and to your point, Curtis, I think part of our problem in the modern church is we've developed into this, what what I like to call the cult of personality. Uh, yeah, yeah. Where we worship these uh, these individuals who've become popular. We, we devote ourselves to them. And if... 
they say something, we we uh, we feel that we've got to adopt whatever that is, no matter who it is. And and listen, I've got my intellectual heroes just as well as anyone else does. But I think the the important point is in all of that is to on the one hand have have deep Bible study to have have a, a passion to love the Lord with our mind as much as we love the Lord with any other facet of our being. But if we choose to go down the route of of higher education, always remain humble and do not allow that to make us feel that we're greater than someone else because, honestly, we are not. And, and, and as you said, Curtis, rightfully so, there is no partiality with God. And if we're not careful, God says if we allow these things to go to our head uh, and, and become proud, then he can bring us down a few notches. And not only can he, he will, you know, if if we get too, as, as uh, Southern colloquialism says, too big for our britches. <laughs> You know, I mean, just I mean, just kind of to, to to kind of bounce off of what you're saying there. If we look at it as the infantry, the ones that are going out and, and sharing the gospel and sharing those kind of things, and we get hit with with questions, uh, you know, or statements and such, and so we have to come to the intellectual ones like you or wherever you know oh, bless to, your heart. to get to that. <laughs> well, to, to get the to get the to get the information to be able to give that back to that person that did bring that uh, question or statement or what have you. So we have the answer. You may not be out there fighting the fight like a, um, you know, a a person that's, that's doing just evangelical work, evangelizing on the street or what have you. But if they get, if they get bombarded with some information or some questions or statements, they have to find that there, there has to be someone that has, has searched out or has mastered that thought or that line of thinking. So they can actually have the answer that therefore I, I think that, you know, when, when Peter's talking about there, always be ready to give a defense for your faith, I don't necessarily think that Peter's saying you need to know every single bit of right. what's going on. I think you, I think essentially, always be ready to give a defense, but also to to know where to find that information. Absolutely, absolutely, most certainly. You know, I, I was I've started listening to Craig Keener's podcast, Biblical Backgrounds podcast. Really good. He and him and uh, he and Kurt Jaros. Uh, are both on the podcast, and and he was talking about he went to Duke University uh, for his for his training, and he was talking about you know Craig Keener's been a huge asset to the church. Uh, how he writes as much as he does, I mean, I, it's taken all my being to write this dissertation. How he in the world he writes these thousand page books. I mean, he he writes them out like a, a normal person, you know, makes a sandwich. I mean, it's, it's, I know it's unbelievable. But uh, he was talking about his calling, and he said that when he started dating his wife, who would soon to be his wife, he was talking about the calling that God had placed upon him. And 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 his wife, his who would be his future wife, said that she didn't feel called to be a. a a pastor, a pastor's wife. And he says, well, you know, I, I don't feel called to be a pastor either. He said, I, I feel called that I'm called to be a teacher to pastors. And I think that is, it goes really well with what you're saying there, Curtis, that, uh, that there are those out there who can serve as resources for individuals who are in the ministry, who are pastors, right. who are doing the everyday work, maybe they get stumped. Listen, I've been a pastor before. I understand it is difficult for you to take the time necessary to look up some of these questions. That's why our ministry at Bellator Christi exists, to be able to provide those type of answers. Right. And that's why I encourage people right. to take advantage of the submitted question form at Bellator Christi. We've got a team of people who would be more than happy to answer your questions. And we've got a lot more questions coming in. In fact, uh, there are even some more questions that came in that I haven't sent to the team just yet uh, that, I, that I'll hopefully get out to them here soon. And I just kind of want to maybe, you know, even kind of just touch on that a little sure. bit because, like, um, 
Greg Greg uh, Kokel in STR, he makes it very clear. He's not one to go out and have, you know, go out and go street preaching. He mm-hmm. doesn't. He doesn't go out and and do that. But what he does is their their ministry is developed in such a way that he's got a library full of information for people to come that are those type that want to go out and do that. He feels that he his calling is to empower the saints, the empower the 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 workers, the people going out and doing that, empowering people to to have the knowledge, but also to have the have the material to come back to. Yeah, you just encapsulated exactly why Bellator Christie exists, and that that's really the yeah, calling that exactly. God has placed upon. That that's the vision that God has given me for this ministry to really be a resource to equip the saints, uh, to provide ready answers for people who have yep. curious questions. Yeah, and I mean, what's really unique about this is even on our podcast, we take big lofty ideas and big lofty words and we break them down into what do those things mean yeah. and how do we apply it how do we apply it to our daily walk absolutely and i think that's pretty unique absolutely so, so this one here uh does jesus still perform miracles today <laughs> this this is one of the more sticky questions in modern theology but <laughs> I, I i think the answer is yes absolutely um yeah. Is it, I think it's the high priestly prayer. Uh, you know, Jesus tells. I mean, Jesus sends out the apostles. Now, now, granted, we may not have the the miracles performed today that we see uh, back in the apostolic church. I mean, as far as the frequency of miracles that we see, but that's not to say that God still doesn't do miracles. Um, I, I you know I, I don't see anything in Scripture, to my knowledge, that ever says. That miracles were going to stop. Right. I, I just don't see. I just don't I see agree. that. Um, right. I mean, the Spirit of God. I mean, there's a passage of Scripture that says the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives within us. And so, if that's the, if that's the case, and it's, and, it's, and it's through the Spirit of God, according to the Father's will, Jesus being the instrument. Of course, it's different with us in the sense that we're not the incarnate Son of God, but we are children of God. Right. Uh, but but Jesus right. even even says that you can do these type of miracles and even more so in another passage of scripture. So I think he's given the allusion to the the ongoing miraculous ministry of the Holy Spirit working in and through the church. So um, I think he still does. But I think the qualifier is that you know it, it has to be according to the Father's will. I think if we're but I think the problem we face more along more than anything else. Is something we've already mentioned. It, it's not the Father's willingness to do miracles, but it's our lack of belief that He can do miracles these days, right. and um, mm. our lack of willingness to be used, or our unwillingness, I should say, to be used by the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, there's something to be said about not quenching the Holy Spirit. Mm. Powerful. Well, and I mean. We have had a couple of podcasts on miracles. I'm sure the mm-hmm. listeners could go back and look that stuff up. We've also had some writing on uh, miracles, but along with that, there's there's several books that have just that have come out in the past several years. Craig Keener being one of them with the two volume set of of uh, miracles, mm-hmm. and uh, Lee Strobel talking about miracles and such. And I I think what's what is unique. What is really unique is, okay, if we say miracles don't happen today, if Jesus isn't performing miracles today, all of those, all of those uh, evidenced um, in those books, all of those quote unquote miracles or things that have happened, NDEs, all of those, all of that stuff, all of them would have to be either a figment of somebody's imagination or some other natural explanation of it. Because if one of them is actually true, just one, then miracles happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
and you had and it's not just one occasion i mean my goodness talking about NDEs. yeah, yeah. uh dr jeff long medical doctor he runs the uh uh nderf.org uh near death um it's, it's, it's something research foundation uh maybe it is near death experience research foundation i think that's what it is and when he wrote his mm-hmm. book evidence for the afterlife he had about something like um maybe 2000 stories that had come into that had been that had been verified stories of ndes globally now it's up to 4000 it's doubled 4000 stories go. nde stories that's been confirmed globally we're not and, talking and confirmed and confirmed by pure 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 or Pew Review. I can't remember. How do you say that? Well, well it, 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 all of them may not be peer-reviewed, but they may be okay. They may be medically uh, confirmed. In other words, medically confirmed okay. that the person was, yep. in fact, dead uh, when, when they something had Something was. Something happened here. Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So there again, there's one of those things. And then you got... Um, another ministry that's out there, I think it's called uh, Sendproof, uh, Sendproof.org or Sendproof.com, and uh, they, same thing. Wow. You know, verify, um, uh, you know, medical documented uh, miracles. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think we have uh, volumes of... of um Material to verify the fact that uh, resurrections do, in fact, s- still occur in Jesus' name. Yep. And it just so happens that some of these miracles, there have been, been yep. stories told where uh, there have been Christians in uh, certain areas where um, they um, something, something happens where a witch doctor claims to perform a miracle, but the Christian comes along and, they, and calls upon Jesus' name, and, the, and a real genuine miracle has happened, and an entire community came to faith. Uh, by the way, I found Oops. out something <laughs> interesting, too. Uh, Eusebius records something in the church history book, written in what, the 4th century, I think, if I'm not mistaken. He tells a story about, you know, when Jesus goes to Caesarea Philippi, and he uh, is is at a gate, was called the Gate of Hell. There at Caesarea Philippi, it's a huge cave. Yep. They had a uh, they had a uh, an altar built in the grotto there to the Greek god Pan, uh, which was a god of the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And so it was believed by the ancients. This was this was a place worse than Las Vegas. Uh, this was the red light district mm-hmm. of that town. As bad as the town was, this was a red light district. Rabbis encouraged or actually warned people about even going near this, saying if you're a rabbi or if you're a Jewish believer, don't even go to this area. It's that bad. Jesus, mm-hmm. it's there where Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? They, they mentioned different, apost- the different mm-hmm. prophets. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, so on and so forth. The Father's revealed this. But he talks about the, how they have the keys to the kingdom, the, the, that uh, they have uh, heaven, the kingdom of God, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, he's proclaiming he's proclaiming war on the powers of hell. They're at the, it was called, considered the gates of hell. Well, interestingly... There's a Christian coming along in the third century, I believe it is. I can't think of his name offhand. I think it starts with a G. He goes to this place, and there's still these cults around this area worshiping these different gods. And he calls out the name of Jesus of Nazareth, who was just there earlier, and said, The gates of hell will not prevail. He calls out the name of Jesus of Nazareth, prays over the area, praying that God would bring an end to this wickedness. And you know what? They try to sacrifice something for the god pan and it and it didn't happen as it was supposed to it's like the sacrifice didn't go <laughs> under the water it floated when it was supposed to go under and from that moment on him calling the name of jesus worship of those greek gods ceased at that moment so christ yeah. had the victory over this man's with this man's prayer he had the victory over that pagan worship and that 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 awful awful city hmm. yeah so Wow. <laughs> Miracles. Be even more of a miracle if we get this done in an hour or so. <laughs> it's yeah. just going to happen. 
Well, the the, he- <laughs> the heavy content, at least on my part, is 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 finished with that yep. one. <laughs> yep. So we got a few wrap up questions here. Um, number six, and I, I'm just going to kind of go off of this because um, this is kind of going into the overall Christology and and Christianity, so on and so forth. So, at what level does our Christianity impact our faithfulness to Orthodoxy? Yeah, or Christology. I, I think if one of the things that stands out to me in this study, Curtis, is, is as we've gone through this, is how many really heretical views stemmed off of mm-hmm. bad beliefs of Jesus, whether it be his human nature or his divine nature. And yep. I was floored by how many heresies stemmed about, and even some modern day heresies aren't unique. They're just derivations of and variations of earlier heresies that stemmed about. And, and I think you made the point that uh, Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. So yeah. I, I think having a, a good, accurate biblical view of Christ will help a person stay faithful to Orthodox Christian beliefs. What, what, what do you think? I agree. I think that I think that uh, holding to a high Christology. Um, allows us to um, to interpret everything we see or interact with um, in the world today through that Christology lens or that Jesus lens. Mm-hmm. We not necessarily like WWJD, JD, you know, what would Jesus do? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm, I'm saying if we if we think about if we're always looking at this and and trying to look at how things are being said, stated, or whatever's in the churches, if if it's not um if, if it's if it's pulling away or taking away from the deity and the and the high Christology of Jesus, then 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 it's not right. It allows us to have a fil- have a filter. Mm-hmm. Absolutely agree. So so uh Number seven, can our Christology limit spiritual distractions? Yeah, I, I think so. And, and, and I would be interested what you mean here by, by spiritual distractions, too. Uh, I think that, um, but I think if you're talking about here the um, things in life that distract us from the mission we have serving Christ and serving the Lord, I, I think it can help us stay focused on making sure the main things are the main things. And and not to be focused on issues long term that aren't as um, possibly as important as as other things mm-hmm. may be. You know, keep, mm-hmm. keeping the major issues major and not monitoring main on the things, majors. Main things, yeah. yeah, or not majoring on the minors is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. And then number uh, the last one here it says how does Christology impact our interactions with others? I think if you realize that we are people saved by the mm-hmm. grace of God, then mm-hmm. we have no room to boast in and of ourselves. That we realize that we're sinners saved by the grace of God, and um, as one person has put it, that really uh, a saved child of God is is uh, when they're sharing the gospel with others it's just one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread yeah, if we hold a so good yeah if if we hold a proper Christology and and even a proper view of humanity and, and that's going to be something we're going to talk about later on in one of our future uh, series mm-hmm. um, I, I think I think that keeps everything in perspective yeah mm. yeah and I think that um I think the other picture that I had in my head as soon as I started thinking about, or as soon as we started talking about this, was if you can imagine, like, uh, um, rock climbers climbing up a rock, and and um, I, I'm reaching up to, uh, to a, 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 a hook that somebody else has already put in, and I'm reaching down to put in a hook for somebody else that's coming behind me. So so you're you're constantly, you know, worried about you know interacting with those ahead of you and and behind you um in the faith and not that not that 
like we're saying earlier, not partiality wise, but if if you got somebody that's um, say middle age and you got some seasoned Christian veterans that are that are older, you know, you're seeking guidance, you're seeking that wisdom, and the young young guys are you're helping pull them along and helping them show. Um, how to read the scripture, how to uh, dig through it, and how to apply it to their lives and apply it to their families. And and, and you're asking, hey, what do I do? How do I how do I set myself up for this in in the end? I mean, you know, Christians never quote unquote retire, but how do I get to where I'm able to financially retire, support myself in that fashion? But also, then, how do I help? proceed in in spreading the gospel what would be the next game plan and i think that's important to always consider where we've been and where we're going and looking for either pulling somebody along or trying to get information from somebody ahead of us and and i think that's absolutely the biblical model and and that's something i mentioned uh last sunday when i preached um you know preached a message on the social order in the church social order in the family um Mm. And and one of the things I really made mention of is the fact that that in you know in in the way, in our American church it seems like that we either have one or two things happening we either have you know uh, the elders of the church not training the youth of the church not allowing them to take part in the church or you have situations where the youth just overtake everything in the church and the elders without the elders advice or even input from the elders and i think both models are absolutely wrong and they're 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 they're, they're yep. fallacious i think the biblical model from the very beginning was to uh, have the elders of the church to train up and disciple the youth of the church to bring them along and grow them in the graces of the Lord. And so I think that's the model we need to strive for. Amen. I think that's uh, I think that's good. Well, folks, uh, that's a wrap on our Christology series. Um, oh, boy, join us next week. This, uh, this next week is going to be a good one. We're going to start in on some... Uh, some important things that help us uh, as we as we get closer and closer to Easter uh, in in this next coming month. We that we're uh, we're going to start talking about some of these uh, uh, messianic prophecies and 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 some of the stuff that oh boy, some of that stuff really interests uh, me and and Brian. And it just it just it gets you excited to. Uh, to know where we're headed and what we've what we've already seen and what's already taken place. So hey, Curtis, before, before we uh, before we wrap things up, let, let me just say a, a word, yeah. a quick word to our Bellator Christie listeners, J- just to let you know. Uh, we, we I may actually made wanted to make mention of this last week and just forgot. Uh, we're we're starting a new format. It's just it's so just to let you know what's going to happen. Our, our season we started a seasonal series uh, for Bellator Christie, so our Season 5 will continue through May, and so the end of May, we're going to take a break in June. Uh, we're going to have a few, we don't know how many shows we'll have in the summertime, but we're going to have a Season 2 for a summer interview series coming up in July and maybe in August. We really don't know how many we're going to have just yet. Uh, then we're going to take September off, and then Season 6 will begin uh, the first of October, so we're going to have a couple months off. So, if you don't hear any podcasts during that time, uh, know that we haven't left. We haven't gone anywhere. Uh, we're still here. Um, so, just stay tuned. So, we just wanted to make mention of uh, of of the goings on of Bellator Christie. Well, there you have it, folks. Um, we uh, we are excited to, to to continue these series and 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 do what we're doing. So. We here at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending time together with us, and we value that time. Our prayers that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie podcast. Until next time, Brian and I say, soldier on, friends. been listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com 
The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christi Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christi Podcast and bellatorchristi.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today.